Well, this really is such a wonderful chapter of the Bible. I just want to hook in as quick as we can. So a very quick recap of what we have done in the past two weeks. Chapter 1, you remember? The dark, dark storm of the of the fury of God coming against sin, uh, the sin of his own people, Judah, and indeed the whole world. And it was a dark, dark, violent, destructive storm. Chapter 2, and the sun begins to break through uh, the storm of God's judgment uh, because God promises his people a certain future. Now this certain future in chapter 2, it doesn't mean that the judgment won't fall doesn't mean that the judgment won't fall. So in chapter 3, hopefully you noticed as Howard read it, it began with a reminder that God will come against his people in judgment, but that after the storm of judgment will come a brand new day and it will be so glorious and so bright you will need sunglasses to be able to be there to soak it through because it's not just a certain future that God has in store for his people It's a glorious future, a glorious good future. And that future is still held out to us today as the people of God and that glorious future that God has in store for us, it means that we rejoice. We as the people of God are a people of joy in all things, even in the midst of trouble, trial, sadness and grief. We remain the people of joy because of God and his goodness and the future he has in store for us. So let's look into chapter 3. And uh, first comes the reminder from uh, God that Judah is guilty of sin and God will judge them in anger. And that's really verses 1 to 4. It catalogues some more of Judah's sin. In verses 6 and 7, uh, God bemoans, he, he, he's weary of the fact that Judah has not taken any notice of his warnings. So he says in verses 6 and 7, I've destroyed other nations around you because of their sin. Did you think I wouldn't do it to you? But Judah hasn't taken notice. She just has continued in her vile sins. And so God says to her, just you wait, because here I come. Have a look at verse 8, chapter 3 and verse 8. Therefore wait for me declares the Lord, for the day I will stand up to testify. I have decided to assemble the nations, to gather the kingdoms and to pour out my wrath on them, all my fierce anger. The whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. You see, before God comes to restore his people, he is coming to judge. Not just Judah, but the whole world. Uh, It's a picture of God assembling the nations together that he might pour out his fierce anger on them Uh, like we do here in winter with, you know, we sort of assemble the kindling when we're going to light a fire. Uh, But it's more a picture here of pouring out fuel on them and lighting a match that everything would be consumed in a moment. God is going to come and judgment will fall. And for Judah, fall it did. For God came against them using the nation of Babylon and he wreaked untold carnage on the people of Judah. God's fierce fury, it fell again, not just for on Judah by the, by the people of Babylon, but it fell in a most surprising place on his own son, the Lord Jesus, 
when he died. Because Jesus came, didn't he, to save sinners, to save them from the wrath of God. And how did he do that? By facing it for them. And he did it. He faced the fury of his father the day he was crucified. When he died, it was as if there was a giant magnifying glass uh, held above him. You know how magnifying glass focuses all the sun's rays onto one single point? Well, it was as if when Jesus died, there was a magnifying glass above him and all of God's anger was poured into that magnifying glass and it was focused down on one point, on one man, Jesus Christ. And it all fell on him that sinners might be saved. And God's judgment will fall one final frightening time when the Lord Jesus returns. And it really does beg the question for us, doesn't it? Are we ready for that day? Are we ready for the day when God will assemble the nations like kindling and pour out on them his wrath? Are we ready for that day? Because the good news... The wonderful news of Jesus is that, of course, you can be ready. Anyone who asks Jesus to save them from that day of wrath, anyone who asks receives. That's why he died. Anyone who asks receives. You can find shelter from the fierce day of God's wrath if you hide yourself in Jesus. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee, is that great hymn. But it's not just that if you turn to Jesus, you'll be saved from the coming wrath of God. You'll also be saved so that you can enjoy all that God has in store for his people. Because, remember, after the judgment will come God's great restoration. That's the wonderful news of Zephaniah chapter 3, that a glorious brand new day will dawn after the storm of God's judgment. And there's three things that Zephaniah wants us to know about this restoration that God has in store for his people. We're up to point two on your outline. And the first thing that Zephaniah wants us to know about God's restoration is that it's universal. It will include people from all the nations, not just Judah, not just Jews, but people from all over the world. Have a look at verse 9. Verse 9. Then will I purify the lips of the peoples, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. You see, you've got the lips of the peoples, the lips of the nations being purified. All the nations will be involved and included in this restoration. This verse sort of harks back to, if you can remember, the Tower of Babel. Uh, Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. And now you've got all the world gathered together uh, as one people uh, with one language to uh, in pride and in arrogance to do things on their own without God, will hear God's promising that he will purify the lips of the people. He's going to reverse Babel. He's going to reverse the confusion of their language and the people will be assembled again, yes, but not in arrogance and not in pride, but they will be shoulder to shoulder, people from all nations, to serve the Lord, not to fight against him. But it's not just that the people from all nations will be included in this restoration. It's also that God's restoration will be shameless. And by that I simply mean that there will be no shame. Shame, uh, particularly in the Old Testament, is uh, it fall, it, it, it's disgusting in that it's on God and his people. 
Uh, God can experience shame and his people can experience shame uh, by sin and by God's judgment on sin. So the sin of God's people drags God's name through the mud. And so he's embarrassed by the sin of his people. His people are ridiculed because they're living such terrible lives. Uh, the Tour de France is on at the moment, and I don't know whether you know it, but you know there's about 180 riders. But each rider in the Tour de France is involved in a team. Not every rider is trying to win. Uh, each team is trying to win. And so every rider has one, one person in their team that they're trying to get to the finish line first. Well, three days ago, Ricardo Rico tested positive for the banned substance EPO, uh, which meant he was automatically kicked out of the Tour. It also meant that his whole team withdrew from the tour. Because Ricardo's cheating, it reflects on his entire team. They all look sus now, and no one knows whether they're, they're all cheating. And so Ricardo's, Ricardo's cheating has dragged his whole team through the mud. And so they all share in the shame. Well, the sin of God's people is shameful, not just for them, but for God himself. An embarrassment to him as their God. Judah looked bad and they're making Yahweh look bad. But not just sin itself brings shame, but the judgment of God on his people for their sin makes God look bad again. Because it looks like God has gathered a people together only to not be able to keep them and he's got to let them go and he's got to... If you can remember last year we had a look at the book of Numbers and uh, in Numbers you've got Old Testament Israel they've been brought out of the Exodus I brought out of Egypt, sorry, through the Exodus. God's brought them to the very brink of the land and he says, here it is, go in and get it. And what does Old Testament Israel do? They say, no, we don't trust you. We don't think you're able to do it. And so God in his righteous fury says to Moses, I'm going to wipe them out. I am going to destroy them off the face of the earth. And Moses says, God, if you do that, then the Egyptians will look and they'll say, God wasn't able to give them what he promised. You see, God's judgment on his people, it makes him look bad because it makes him look weak. It makes him look weak. But in Zephaniah chapter 3, God promises that when he restores his people, there'll be no more shame, there'll be no more sin, and there'll be no more judgment. There'll be no more shame for God, no more shame for his people. Look for these two things uh, in verses 10 to 16. No more sin, no more judgment. Verse 10 through to verse 16. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshippers, my scattered people, will bring me offerings. On that day you will not be put to shame for all the wrongs you have done to me, because I'll remove from this city those who rejoice in their pride. Never again will you be haughty on my holy hill, but I will leave within you the meek and humble who trust in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel will do no wrong. They will speak no lies, nor will deceit be found in their mouths. They will eat and lie down, and no one will make them afraid. Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day they will say to Jerusalem, Do not fear, O Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. Pride will be gone. Lies will be gone. Deceit will be gone. His people will do no wrong. 
And instead of facing the wrath of God in fear, as God brings nations against them, he will make them eat and lie down. Their enemies will be turned back and they will never fear again. There will be no more shame when God restores his people. They won't ridicule themselves by sinning. God won't appear weak by judging them. God's not going to have his name dragged through the mud when he brings his final restoration for his people. But it's not just universal. It's not just going to include people from all over the world. It's not just shameless. It's also where God's people will be praised. God's people will be praised. Instead of being an embarrassment to God, God's people are going to be honoured. They're going to be lifted up because God is going to come in among them in delight to save them. Have a look, verse 17. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. The sorrows for the appointed feasts I'll remove from you. They're a burden and a reproach to you. At that time I'll deal with all who oppressed you. I'll rescue the lame and gather those who have been scattered. I'll give them praise and honour in every land where they were put to shame. At that time I will gather you. At that time I'll bring you home. I will give you honour and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your very eyes, says the Lord. What a hope. What a restoration. God here promising that he will come and be with them, dwelling among them. He will save them. He'll delight in them. He'll quiet them with his love. He'll rejoice over them. He's going to remove their sorrow, remove their oppressors. He's going to rescue them and gather them up and they will be honoured because of all that God has done for them. We need to notice, though, that this is for Jerusalem. Back up in verse 14, we read, Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. You see, when God pulls off all of this, when this day comes, Jerusalem will be restored and Jerusalem will, will rejoice. Now, Jerusalem just stands for the place where God rules, the place where God rules, the place where God lives with his people in goodness and righteousness and safety and peace. And in verse 20, even though it's going to be Jerusalem that will enjoy this restoration, it's not just for Jerusalem. Have a look at verse 20. At that time I will gather you. At that time I'll bring you home. I'll give you honour and praise among all the peoples of the earth. See, this is taking us back to verse 9, where all the nations will be included in this great restoration, that after the storm of God's judgment, God is promising a brand new day that God will be with his people from every nation and he'll be removing, he'll remove sorrow from them. He'll delight over his people. He will be their God. They will be his people. He's going to remove all evil and rejoice over his people. Does it remind you of anything? Turn across, please, to some familiar verses in Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21. Because here God promises a new Jerusalem, a new place where God will live and rule and dwell among his people. And like Zephaniah said, 
It'll be a place where God dwells among his people. He'll have saved them. He'll have gathered them up. He'll delight over them. He'll wipe away their tears. We get a snippet of this new Jerusalem in Revelation 21 from verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Here is when the words given to us in Zephaniah 3 will reach their final and full fulfilment. When God brings down his new Jerusalem, where people from every nation and every tribe and every tongue will be gathered by God and he will dwell with them, live among them. He will save them. He'll quiet us with his love. He'll delight over us as a husband delights over his bride. He'll wipe away our tears. He'll remove all sorrow and all evil. Is it going to be good? It's going to be great. And I certainly hope you're looking forward to this day. Judah was told to rejoice when this day came. With Jesus, for us, this day, it's already started. It's already started. We have already been saved from the coming wrath of God in Jesus. We already have God dwelling among us by his Holy Spirit. We already have our sins forgiven. We already have God rejoicing over us as sinners who have repented and asked for forgiveness. We, this day has dawned. It's already begun. And so we rejoice now. We're the people of joy. Now, it doesn't mean you're going to be happy all the time. Uh, happiness can come and go. Circumstances can change. And uh, sometimes we're happy and sometimes we're sad. But joy stands firm because Christian joy rests on things that don't change. Christian joy rests on what God has done for us and on what God will do for us. And nothing can change that. And so whether we're happy or sad, we are joyful. No matter what happens in life, there is a bigger picture. There's something much bigger going on. Now taking stock of a bigger picture, it can be helpful in all sorts of times, can't it? Uh, when your football team doesn't win, it's very helpful to remember it's just a game. Uh, when you don't do as well as you would like in exams, uh, it's, it's always... That doesn't mean that suddenly your life's worthless and it's pointless or anything like that. But when you lose sight of the bigger picture, things can get out of whack, can't they? So in South America, you've got uh, when your soccer team loses, there's riots and people are getting trampled on. Uh, you hear stories of people committing suicide over university exam results that have gone sour. If you, if you lose sight of the big picture, uh, things can get out of whack. But if you keep sight of the big picture, well, things mightn't seem so bad. Now, as Christians... With our God-given big picture, it's not just that things won't seem so bad, it's just that it's also that in the midst of trouble, we can still rejoice. We can still rejoice. 
Do you have joy? Christian joy. There's lots that can make that hard. There's lots that can make Christian joy elusive. But joy stands firm. Because you can diagnose me with cancer, but you cannot take away my place in the new creation where there'll be no more sickness or death. I don't have cancer, so relax. But even if, if that day comes, the cancer can't take away my place in the new creation. We can find ourselves in all sorts of trouble, can't we? We can have trouble with money. Uh, we can have trouble finding enough work. We can have trouble at school. We can have uh, medical issues. We can have depression. But no trouble in this life can change the fact that on the day of God's trouble, when the Lord Jesus returns in wrath at sin, nothing can change that I'm already saved. Nothing can change that. People can alienate us from even our own friends and our own family. And we can be caused all sorts of emotional and relational pain and alienation. But they can't take away the fact that God already dwells within us by his Holy Spirit and one day we'll see him face to face. People can be malicious, sneaky, unkind, just downright evil, either to our face, behind our backs. But they can't change the sheer delight that the God of the universe has over his people. Now look, I'm not saying that these other things are easy, that you know, people alienating us or trouble or sickness or maliciousness, I'm not saying those things are easy. They can be extremely hard and they will make us sad and we will grieve. And lots of other things can cause us any all sorts of trouble. But even if you add them all together, nothing can take away our joy because nothing can take away what God has done, what he is doing and what he will do for his people. And so we need to be the people who fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus. We need to bring to mind God's forgiveness of our sins. We need to bring to mind his delight over us, his people. We need to bring to mind that one day God will remove all sin and all evil and all sickness and even death. We need to bring to our minds that God lives within us right now and that one day we'll see him face to face. We need to bring to mind that one day God will wipe away our tears. We need to bring these things to our mind. We need to write them on the walls of our houses. We need to do whatever we can that we are constantly thinking and meditating and being reminded of the goodness of God to us so that we'll be his people of joy, resting in his certain and glorious future that he has in store for us. Because as one day, as Zephaniah says, God says in Zephaniah, one day, there'll come a time, God says, when I will gather you up and at that time, I will bring you home. I will bring you home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thrilled at your goodness and your grace to us in the Lord Jesus, that in him we are saved from sin. In him uh, you dwell within us by your Holy Spirit. 
Uh, you hold out to us the promise of sickness and death and sin being removed. You'll wipe away our tears. Your new Jerusalem where you will dwell among your people and we will see you face to face. Father, you are so good. And so we pray that we would understand these things more and more and be your people of joy. Even in the midst of trouble, we would rejoice because you are king and we are your people and you delight over us and rejoice over us even in the face of our sin. Thank you for the Lord Jesus and his death and resurrection for us that we, we might be yours. Thank you. Amen.